Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Monday, February 3rd. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Modica. The music is familiar. The hosts are familiar. The name of the show has changed. Uh, it's a new season, so we've changed up our lineup a little bit. And if you listen to Almost Daily last season, that show has basically been replaced by this one. So Matt and I are going to record new episodes on Mondays throughout draft season. Once the season begins, we're going to have a late-night Sunday episode ready for Monday morning listening, recapping fab pickups from the weekend, and looking ahead at schedules for the upcoming week. Uh, the rest of the schedule is great as well. We've got Under the Radar under this umbrella now as well. So that show airs on Wednesdays with Nando DeFino, Ian Kahn, and myself. On Fridays, I'll be joined by Michael Beller and oftentimes a guest from The Athletic or elsewhere in the industry. And then once we get to the season, our Sunday morning waiver show comes back as well. So you can now listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. That means you might be listening for the first time, and it might mean that you're not already subscribed to the athletic so if you want to get a subscription you can get 40 percent off at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast today marked the launch of our draft kit matt did a ton of work for that there are articles rankings pretty much everything you would need to get ready for the 2020 season so be sure to check that out matt welcome to the new show it's uh, gonna be a great season yeah no i'm very excited about it i'm stoked that we're Pretty much six weeks away till the big live events happen. And uh, I'm very happy that I won't have to talk fab on Sunday mornings. (laughs) (laughs) Even with that, you had an amazing season last year. Of course, you can find Matt on Twitter at CTM Baseball. I think you referred to it as your own Mona Lisa. Um, Ultimate auction, super draft, you know, a main event, auction championship. You did incredible work across the the high stakes arena last year uh, but yeah there's a, a lot of ground to cover and uh, I'm excited to do this now this week on this Monday episode we're going to focus on some problem players I hope we get through everybody on this episode if we don't maybe it becomes a two episode series but basically we're talking about the players that have been the most difficult to rank or project for 2020 for a variety of of different reasons. And in some cases, these are players who are, are spiking in value near the top of the draft board. In other cases, it's proven players who have fallen quite a bit because their 2019 season was such a disappointment. Uh, but let's start with one of the most exciting players in the player pool. Fernando Tatis Jr. hit a January ADP of 16.5 in NFBC leagues, a min pick of eight. I understand the appeal. I totally understand it. You can watch him play, and the tools are apparent. But when you start to break down what we saw from Fernando Tatis Jr. as a rookie, Matt, we had a season cut short with a back injury. By most accounts, that was more of a precautionary sort of shutdown the Padres elected to go with for him. But there were a lot of things that, under the surface, didn't necessarily look great, most notably a 296 percent strikeout rate it's very high for a guy that hit 317 last year not surprisingly a 410 BABIP in there as well uh, as you start to put together a 2020 projection for Fernando Tatis Jr. did you come up with a player who belongs inside the first round it's and this is where it's like am I betting on what the possibilities uh, can be I think this guy has the potential to be a top overall pick I just don't think it's going to happen this year. My main concern isn't the Babbitt. 
I don't think he's going to have a 410 Babbitt begin. But even if it's like 370, I wouldn't be surprised by that. He has, you know, he has, he's the most exciting player in baseball, I think, right now. I mean, he's, he tagged up on pop ups like twice last year. But that strikeout percentage is really the thing that, you know, frightens me. In that first round, you know, if if he, you know, struggles, you know, that sophomore season for a lot of even really good players is an adjustment period. So that's the thing. You know, I think he's got, you know, number one overall potential. Uh, I don't know right now. If, if I'm in a big money league, I'm going to have a hard time taking him around that turn, a little before, a little after. I did do one draft champion, like a 150, where I took him. I did want to start a team with him just to see how it looked. Yeah, it gets to a point where if you're going to play in enough leagues, you don't want to be completely without shares, even if you're skeptical at that price. And again, I, I see the same kind of long-term potential from Fernando Tatis Jr. that you do. It's just a question of how is he really going to get there? And I think the stolen bases are one thing that are really driving a lot of players' value through the early rounds. I mean, we saw 16 steals and 22 attempts last year in just 84 games from Tatis. Obviously, he's fast. You can see it when you watch him. The stat cast numbers back that up. Is it fair to assume that with a complete healthy season that he's going to top 25 stolen bases with ease, though? Like, Because if he has a floor of 25 steals, he has power to go with it, even if it's not quite as much power as we saw last year. That's a really nice foundation. That makes him a safer player than usual for a guy with this risky profile. Like 25 steals is a lot to fall back on. Yeah, I, the twenty five to me is that's that's a big number. I, I think he gets to like twenty, maybe just over it. But I, I just I'm not somebody that will ever just prorate a season because there's going to be guys uh, you're going to see the, these first halves. Whether it's a Josh Bell, I think the injury to Josh Bell's wrist is really what what uh, sidetracked him in the second half. But like uh, Segura, a few years back, where he had that monster first half. And then, you know, kind of disappeared in the second half. It's only a very few players can really sustain it over six months. You're going to have, you know, highs and lows in baseball. It's just how it goes. And I, I will say, he's definitely the most polarizing player because even with, you know, the strikeout percentage and all this, I still want to take him. It's just, it's a hard investment to uh, make in that first round as your foundation. Yeah, especially when you look at the back of the first round and you see you know Nolan Arenado falling even into the back of the top twenty in some rooms. I've seen some boards where that's happened. You know, Freddie Freeman's right back there. Jose Ramirez has a power speed combo that is obviously pretty similar to Tatis. I realize he's been in the league for a couple of years, so maybe the steals start to go away at some point. And the way Ramirez produced last season with the really slow first three months before the red hot surge in July maybe makes figuring him out a little bit tricky as well. But you're just going and passing on so many proven commodities in the back part of the first round. If you go ahead and, and take Tatis there, you might really be kicking yourself later. You can find upside, as people call it. I, I've, I've had this like recent kind of frustration with the word as standalone analysis. You can find players with that growth potential, with the room for improvement, however you want to describe it, you can find those players throughout the draft. You don't necessarily have to take one at the end of round one. And then there's a good case just a couple rounds later with the White Sox rookie outfielder, Luis Robert. He's cruising up draft boards. The January ADP came in at 
Uh, the min pick was 55. I saw a Twitter exchange. I think it might have been you and or Rob Silver suggesting that Luis Robert could be a fourth round pick by the time we get to drafts in March. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know Rob has made some really uh, astute comments. You know, he's a really smart guy. And I mean, here's the, I've seen, you know, this one, I'm not going to say his name, but one uh very good uh, high stakes player has taken him consistently at sixty one. You know, I've been in a couple of drafts, particularly in every draft, and I've been in a couple with him, and I've seen him do it twice. And there's other people that are doing it. If you look at the Steamer six hundred, I mean, they got him for twenty seven eighty eighty six thirty and a two seventy three batting average. That's you know that's going to be you know fantastic if that came to fruition. I'm just if. if I, I think, you know, maybe I, I think it's going to be more towards that fourth, fifth round, you know, that, that, that fourth round, closer to 60, I'll say, than 86. That's my point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I just I think he's a player that everybody likes in part because the projections are so good for a guy who hasn't even spent a day in the big leagues. I mean, he tore up the minor leagues last year, and again, he runs. He will steal some bases. He might steal a lot of bases. And that's when people start to really uh, dream on the upside. Now, I think much like we saw with Fernando Tatis Jr. as a rookie last year, we're probably going to see the strikeout rate, which was in the low to kind of mid 20% range at each of his minor league stops. We're going to see that jump up a little bit. I think it's going to be a high 20s strikeout rate to begin his big league career with the potential to bring it down, of course, over time. I don't think he's a, a bad hit tool player, but when you look at scouting grades, you see a present 40 grade hit tool on a report from Fangraphs that was from 2019. So that, to me, suggests there's going to be some swing and miss issues against top-level pitching, but he has so many ways to earn that value. I understand why people are excited about him. Now, compared to Tatis, how much more comfortable are you, given the price difference, taking that chance, having that risk with Luis Robert, You know, maybe four or possibly even five rounds later, depending on the room? I mean, look, if I was, I would feel more comfortable there because I'm assuming I have, say, someone I think is an ace on my team, and I have two hitters, like two proven hitters, so I could take that blow, you know, a lot better. But the way I look at it is like when you look at a projection like that. Obviously, the Steamer 600 is saying he's getting 600 at bats, but whatever the projection is, I mean, I like projections, but I try and say like, can he beat that projection? What is the if, if I'm looking at it realistically, I know we all want to be optimist or either some are really just pessimistic people, but if you're really giving it a realistic thing, you know, this is a tough, uh, te- uh, a tough test to beat, in my opinion. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I just think that's a very lofty expectation. We saw that with Vlad Jr., a totally different type of player last year. I remember talking about it at first pitch Arizona. It was around the same time that the steamer projections came out for 2019. And the numbers that we saw on Vlad Jr. were really unlike anything I'd seen probably in at least the last 10 years for a rookie who had not yet debuted in the big leagues. And compared to those ridiculously high expectations, Vlad Jr. was a disappointment last season. Uh, So you, you you can come close. You can come halfway to those projections. You can exceed them. I think that's what makes young players in general so difficult to rank and, and so difficult to project. But I think my my general position on players like this is to take that chance a little bit later on. I mean, Luis Roberts already kind of creeping to that spot where that seems like I'm passing on uh, some pretty established players. I mean, 
if you think about uh, Tommy Pham, who has come up on a few shows going back to the fall as I think one of the more underrated fantasy players in the pool, everything Tommy Pham already does is basically what you're hoping Luis Roberts going to do as a rookie. So if you're looking at those two guys side by side and you want a power speed combo in the fifth round, why not take the guy who's done it a few times before? I you know, look. I totally agree. I think it's a young man's game, but I totally agree with that. Another player is a Ramon Laureano, who I think you know will have a higher batting average and can steal twenty bases and possibly be a twenty twenty guy. Uh, I feel more confident about maybe him doing that. But I mean, for me, here's the thing: I love you know drafting young guys and stuff. And like last year. I was I was in on a lot of young people and, and they, a lot of young players and they helped me a lot. I mean Alonzo, I had Tatis, uh, even a Paddock. These were all double round or later. Like you know, you're getting guys in the 14th round. Tatis was like I don't know, 17, 18, 19, something like that. He was really late. So these are guys. The way I would my advice would be: look at players with a high pedigree that have a really good chance of. Say, if they're not going to start with the team, it's within that Chris Bryant rule, like that first two weeks or after that first month that are going later on in drafts that you can get. That if they don't pan out, aren't going to kill you. Yeah, I, I think that's the optimal way to go about this like avoid as much risk as you can in in the early rounds again reasonably speaking Uh, now I think one thing that really kind of caught my eye recently I was looking at some minor league leaderboards and I was looking at players who were age 22 or younger at the triple a level and with a minimum of 200 plate appearances and I just wanted to see in the last five years who are the best young players at triple a uh, not surprisingly, Luis Robert is among the better players at that level during that time, but he wasn't the best player at AAA over the last couple of years in terms of WRC plus, which is, to me is a good like sort of catch-all sort of offensive metric. And I realize it's not going to count stolen bases, which matter a lot uh, for our game. But I thought it was a really good way just to compare prospects at a similar level to see how they really stacked up. Luis Robert had the fifth highest WRC plus among players at AAA, 22 or younger in the last five years. It's great. So it was the fifth highest, I should say, last year. Luis Urias was just as good. Keston Hero was better. Jordan Alvarez was a lot better. But Gavin Lux was number one, and he was number one over the last five years. The 188 WRC plus. That means he was 88% better than a league average hitter at AAA, and that's comparing apples to apples in a hitter-friendly league with a hitter-friendly ball. And I look at the price difference even between Lux and Luis Robert, and I say, why wouldn't I just take Lux every single time if I want that high upside sort of player, especially when Lux was the better player, a better walk rate, a lower strikeout rate at the same level last season? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's a fair, like Lux, I think you, you, you nailed it right there. A guy like uh, Gavin Lux, who, as you said, was WRC Plus best guy in the last five years. So where he's going, even a guy on uh, Toronto, uh, Kevin, Gavin Biggio. I mean, even if Biggio doesn't work out, he's not going to be the reason why your team didn't win. But if he if he can steal the bases, hit home runs, and you've built a batting average team, because I do think he will be a batting average liability, you're going to have some nice stats from a player, a young player like that. 
Uh, I mean, I, I guess here's the thing for me. I feel a lot more confident for somebody, maybe because I owned him and I, I did watch him a lot more last year. I don't know if he's going to get the steals that everybody expects, but a, but a Bobby Shet is going in that fifth round. And I kind of like that. Bichette versus Luis Robert, I think, is the, actually a pretty fun debate. I think the thing that would give me more confidence with Bichette is that he has debuted and didn't fall on his face. But more importantly, the expectations of who these players are going to be uh, with the grades on their hit tools is pretty significant. Like It's a pretty big difference, and it favors Bo Bichette. So while you know Luis Robert might have a higher ceiling, I think, in terms of hitting the ground and just being productive uh, from you know, a full season uh, at a young age, Bo Bichette makes a lot more sense to me if I'm choosing only between those two players in that spot. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the way I see it. But, you know, it's the the unknown is always so tantalizing. And my point with, like, a guy like Lewis Robert and stuff, I know the game's changed a lot. Like I said, I've been in on these younger players at, at later prices. And there's going to be guys that come along, like Ronald Acuna two years ago, I took at the end of the fifth round, and that worked out. But if we go back to Mike Trout, who was considered like, you know, he was going to be the next great thing, everybody believed that. He had that bad September when he came up, but, you know, he was just a baby. I actually like that he struggled because he got to at least travel with the team. He got that MLB experience. That was the most important thing to me. He was going in the 13th round that year. I know because I was taking him that year. So a guy of Mike Trout's caliber, <laughs> that's how that's how we've changed in the last, whatever, seven years or so. You know, it was a 13th round pick, and now guys are going inside the top five with Vlad last year. It's Robert, but I always want to say Robert. It just sounds so much better. I know. It's it's a terrible <laughs> habit to break because I think we all assumed it was you know Robert when he first broke in as a prospect, and we found out you know, once we started to hear PA announcers and minor league play-by-play people say it that it's pronounced Luis Robert. And it was I think we were all kind of disappointed too, but uh, we'll break that habit eventually. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we have these players who have great track records of success and – are somehow like disappointing us because they're they're not living up to perennial all-star expectations or in the case of Manny Machado a, a massive contract. I mean the first season in San Diego uh, it was a, a step back from expectations. He only stole five bases. He's been very inconsistent in that category throughout his career. Uh, it's something I heard uh, Paul Sporer and, and Justin Mason talking about on a Sleeper in the Bust episode recently. He's gone from 20 in 2015 to zero in 2016, up to nine, up to 14, and then down to five a year ago. Uh, and even the batting average has been a little bit inconsistent, down to 259 back in 2017, up at 297 in 2018, back down to 256 with year one with the Padres. I keep looking at Machado and thinking the projections have this right. He's probably going to split the difference in batting average. He's a 30-home run guy prior to the juice ball, so he should still be a 30-home run guy even if we go back to a normal baseball in 2020. He plays pretty much every day, so he's going to accumulate just ridiculous runs scored in RBI totals, and he's probably going to steal a few bases even if he's not going to get to double digits anymore. What do you look at with Machado at this point? Do you see him as a guy that's actually pretty consistent despite the variance in average and steals? Or do you see a guy who's actually starting to hit that decline phase where the ADP is kind of right to be relatively down on him? 
Uh, here's the thing. This is what I like to point out when I'm giving announcements. I haven't taken Machado yet, though I think he's fantastic where he's going. And like, like just as you were saying, just pull up his Fangraphs page and look at it year after year. 35, 37, 33, 37, 32. So that history is there. Okay, the stolen bases, I have no idea what to predict, but it's not going to be a zero. We know that. And I'm totally on board with you where I think he's like a 275 hitter. I mean, he's, he's, got the, he's got the plate discipline. Now you add Tommy Pham onto this team, a high OBP guy, I got to think the RBIs are going to go up. A full season of Tatis. So if you believe in Tatis as that first-round player and you're adding Tommy Pham in there, uh, I think Manny Machado, especially that he gives you third-base shortstop and the proven track record that he has – with, with the plate skills, and I'm talking myself into like drafting, but the problem is I'm usually drafting a pitcher here, but I may have to change that up. And it might be a case where in an auction, you're getting a player in the low to mid 20s who should still be a $30 player. I mean, I just I see plenty there to still like with Manny Machado. So I think there is some overcorrection in the price that we've seen so far in January. And I don't really know if he has a lot of paths to move up. I mean, I, I don't think. People are going to get excited about him if he has a big spring. I don't think it matters. I think he's been around long enough where people kind of think they've got him figured out. Not totally unlike like an Anthony Rizzo either. Like I see the same kind of thing happen with Rizzo in drafts as well. And he's pretty much been the same player year after year. And I, uh, I think it was Rob Silver who I heard point that out. You know, Rob's like always the voice of reason for me. And he's basically said on, one of, on his podcast that he's basically been that same player when he was a first-round pick. So you got a guy like that. I mean, here's the thing. If Machado would have stolen 14 bases last year, he'd be going at least a round higher. At least. Yeah, at least a round higher because there'd be a belief or a narrative that the Padres are going to keep running with him, that that's part of what they want to do as a team and that he still owns those skills. And instead, I think we are just questioning that. And I think it's okay to question it. But I just think even if he doesn't steal any bases, if he hits 265 or 270, with 30-plus homers and at least 90 runs and at least 90 ribbies, you're not losing anything where he's going in drafts right now, and you got room for some profit. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that really, like, kind of when you when when you think about it and you look at it, this is his age 27 season. Like, what's the cutoff? Like, June 30th? So his birthday is July 6th. So this is going in. This is his age 27 season. You know, so let that, you know, sink in as well. Yeah, he's he's been around forever, but he's not old yet. I mean, he might be at the the back end of the peak. I know the the aging curve is a bit different than we once thought, but 27 is still not old uh, relative to the pool. So uh, I think there is still at least one more really nice season for Manny Machado, but probably a couple. Probably a guy that even in like keeper and dynasty leagues, you could acquire at a slight discount right now and you get pretty good mileage for the foreseeable future. Uh, the other kind of type of player that I think falls into this problem bucket are, are players that we just haven't seen before. Uh, Shogo Akiyama, I mean, unless you watch Japanese baseball, and most of us just don't because we you know live somewhere where we can't see it easily and the time change and all those reasons. Shogo Akiyama, I think, is a, a problem player for a lot of people. Uh, we think he's going to play pretty much every day in the Cincinnati outfield. That's the That's the vibe. Part of the problem is that things are crowded there. The ADP in January for Shogo Akiyama was just outside the top 250 overall. I saw a min pick of 144, so that's pretty aggressive. 
Uh, and talking to Eno Saris about Akiyama, he came up as our, our prospect of the week, I think back in the spring or, or mid part of the summer, when it was pretty clear that he was going to end up uh, coming over to the States for the 2020 season. The comp that Eno came up with, looking at some uh, some translations of, of his production in Japan, was that he's an Adam Eaton type player. And you put Adam Eaton's profile into a park like Cincinnati, you give him a few more home runs, it's actually a pretty nice player, especially if you're going to get him in the back of the top 250. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I agree. I think he's going to play. They went out and got him. Uh, you got Castellanos there, too. They really like did a rehaul. I, I mean, I love everything the Reds are doing. Even on a side note, what they've done with their uh, pitching department as far as their pitching coach they got last year, uh, the pitching directors, the driveline guys they brought in. I, I think everything the Reds are doing in this last, you know, 18 months or 24 months has really impressed me. This kid, I think this guy plays from everything I've heard. He's a really, he's definitely an uh, OBP guy. You know, I, I don't really know him. I never saw him play. I like that ADP, but if he's going to be going up much, if they're going to bump him up 100 uh, point picks, then I would be out. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be grabbing, grabbing him there. Yeah, I think he is an easy dart throw at the current price. I mean, if he splits the difference between that 144 min pick and the 266 ADP, then it becomes a bit more borderline because so I think that would fall in line with the price that you're going to see on Adam Eaton in most rooms. Uh, but for now, I think Shogo Akiyama is a, a discounted player that you do want to have in your outfield, maybe your fourth or fifth outfielder in a league where you have to start that many. I put this question up on Twitter yesterday just to see kind of take the temperature I guess of people that follow me and, and the industry as a whole and uh, I think there's been a, a recurring question as it pertains to the Tampa Bay Rays and how they're going to divvy up playing time and we know they're one of the teams that employs platoons as much as they possibly can you know is, is they max out the flexibility of their 25 and now 26 man roster to really optimally get the hitter matchups they want on any given day. Uh, so it was not that Tony on Twitter who just said, I want to write a team in. I don't want to give you a player. The Rays. Are you looking at the Rays as a team that has a bunch of problem players because of the platoons? Or do you actually see buying opportunities because the market has potentially overcorrected on the uncertain volumes of playing time for a lot of guys who you know could be in at least the big side of a platoon this season? Yeah, I think price is always going to be a factor. And the later you go, you want to... Like, in the NFBC, where you have that, you know, Monday through Thursday, Friday through Sunday, where you can see the matchups and, you know, play certain hitters. You see a Hunter Renfro's got two lefties for the weekend. He's going to be in your lineup. You know, so that is something how you can play it. I mean, but, like, the guys going late for them that I really like is, like, a Willie Ademus. I liked him going into last year, and that first, whatever, like six weeks was was really brutal. It really was tough. I think in one league, I had to, I even let him go. But, you know, this is a kid that's getting better and better. I think he is, as long as he can hit, I mean, he doesn't have to be on, uh, on fire, but as long as he can hit, he's going to play every day. Uh, I mean, Meadows rolling into the season – has to be secured right now of every day. I mean, that 30% versus left-handers isn't ideal, something to watch, but I still love him. Outside of that, it's about, 
you know, playing it right and seeing the price, seeing where maybe in a 15-teamer, one of the best advice I ever got was from Steve Japinka, Hall of Famer, and he was like, you're going to have weaknesses. So as you're going through and the later on in the draft where you say, you know what, this guy right now might be a matchup guy or on the strong side of a platoon, but you know he's going to have that and he can help you out in certain weeks splitting things up. That's where these players become available. And it's uh, for me, it's more about how my roster is being constructed at that time. Do I need a power guy? Do I need a guy that can play both corner positions? You know, something like that is how I would look at it. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about big side platoon players who I felt like were undervalued last year, who had good years and trying to figure out what they were worth. I was looking at the Rotowire uh, auction value calculator, the earned auction value calculator. Jock Peterson, who I thought had a good year last year, relative to expectations at least, was worth $5 in a 15-team mixed league. That was with 28 home runs, 71 runs scored, 62 RBIs, hit 244. He's always been kind of a low-average, high-OBP sort of player. You could move him between first base and outfield for most of the season after he got some playing time at first base. And when he played... He was leading off for a really strong Dodgers lineup, but missing that time does really chip away at a player's value. I think if you're getting those guys outside of the top 300, it totally makes sense to take the chance on one, but I think having that multi-position eligibility helps a lot, uh, and being in a league where you can change up the lineup a lot is obviously very helpful too. So NFBC, of course, you can change it on Mondays and Fridays. In daily leagues, these players are a lot different because you can actually platoon them effectively with somebody else, right? So it does depend a lot on the type of league that you're in. But if you get down to like a 10 or a 12-team league, a big side platoon outfielder, even leading off on a good team, might not be good enough if you don't have the flexibility to kind of counterweight their days off with someone who's actually going to play. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is how I mean I approach it. Is those first five rounds, that foundation... That six to ten is, you know, filling in the in, in the pieces of your roster construction, and that like you know ten to twenty, eleven to twenty, those are where you're you're net you're trying to nail those guys that are pretty much going to help you win those leagues. If you can get like two or three guys in that in that range that wind up becoming everyday productive players, and one really pops. And then you have the final 10 to take your shots, you know, your your high, you know, high risk, high reward kind of guys that really aren't going to hurt you at their cost. I'm with you, though, on Willie Adames, and I think what makes him different is that you can't platoon everybody. He is an above average defender at shortstop, so you don't have as much defensive versatility at that position anyway. I think he gets the counting stats that we're looking for from someone who sticks in our lineup frequently in even a 12-team mixed league this season. I think he's capable of doing that. The price is reasonable. ADP is sitting around uh, 278 right now. If you look at the rest of these guys on the depth chart, I mean, I, I like Hunter Renfro as a player. I don't like his situation. you got to get down probably to the pick 400 range before I see another Ray that, as the roster is currently constructed, that I really like. It's actually Mike Zanino. I like him as kind of a, a punt catcher. I know you're going to give up a lot in batting average, but... If I'm taking on dead weight in the batting average category, I want to do that with a player who's going to play two-thirds or three-quarters of the time as opposed to somebody who's going to play uh, almost every day, right? So I, I think it's less impactful, and I think there is still enough raw power there where Zanino can actually be okay in two-catcher formats, and he's basically free right now. Yeah, I think with the Rays, a player that 
I think if he, I thought they should have kept. It would have been, you know, he was the perfect player for them. Was Avisail Garcia, and you know now he finds himself, you know, in Milwaukee, and what could be a really good opportunity there if he gets the playing time. Yeah, I, I do like uh, Garcia getting out of Tampa Bay. I think the way the rest days are going to work for guys like Braun and, and Kane in particular, it's going to leave Garcia out there as basically an everyday sort of player this season. Uh, the other guy with the Rays who I, th- I think is worth a mention at this point is Jose Martinez. I mean, they quietly got him as part of that swap they made with the Cardinals. And maybe on paper, it just looks like it's Satsugo and Martinez in a straight platoon with Satsugo getting you know the larger share of the playing time as the lefty. But depending on how things fall with the health of their outfielders, you know, if Kevin Kiermeyer's hurt and Austin Meadows has to play center, it's not that difficult to envision a scenario in which Jose Martinez gets run as an everyday DH. Like the main reason he didn't play more in St. Louis is because he does not play capable defense at any position. But that that's gone. Like there's there's a chance for him to just be an absolute masher in the DH spot if one injury happens and just kind of forces the Rays to move pieces around. I mean, am I am I wrong for thinking there's still something there with Martinez if things can break his way? No. I mean, look, I guess there was what last year, I think it was Colette who was really on it, you know, he's a big Rays fan, about trading for Jose Martinez, and it happened this year. I feel like they got a lot of DH kind of type players on that team. But like you said, it, an op- he's an opportunity away. We know he can hit. So he's definitely uh, someone to take a flyer on. I mean, it's complicated, too, because at first base right now, they have two guys in the depth chart, and G-Man Choi and Nate Lowe, who are both lefties. They That's the shame right there. Too. Yeah, like they don't fit in a platoon, but as good as G-Man Choi was last year, if you told me he's going to be the Jesus Aguilar of 2020, I don't think I would push back on that all that much. I could see him being one of those quick peeks over to guys that plays his way off the roster, just has a, a bad stretch for six weeks, becomes a bench player, and they realize, well, this guy really only plays first base. If we have other options, he's gone. A minor trade or a DFA is basically uh, within the range of outcomes, and suddenly Nate Lowe's the first baseman. But again, all these players that we're talking about after Adames and Zanino, they all kind of need something to break their way. That's where this frustration comes from. But we may get that clarity before the season begins. I mean, injuries happen during spring training. Uh, trades could still happen. You you could look at the Rays and say they've got a loaded roster and they've got the depth that you'd expect a team contending for the postseason to have. But you could also look at them and say they're not quite a finished product. There's still one more move to be made here. Uh, so it, it remains to be seen what that's actually going to be. But I'm watching very closely as we uh, get closer to spring training to see if they decide to go at it with this group or if, in fact, there will be some sort of adjustment. Uh, the other problem player is he's a problem player every year. <laughs> he's it's year three for Shohei Otani. Uh, ADP right around pick 100, 106.16 to be precise, a min pick of 61 uh, in January. Otani's a fascinating player. There's no denying the talent, Matt. I just think in, especially the NFBC, which is where these ADPs are coming from, he's a very difficult player to deal with this season. You get a seven-man bench. You have to commit to hitter versus pitcher at the beginning of the week. If you go hitter at the beginning of the week, you can pull him on Friday like any other hitter. But if you go pitcher at the beginning of the week, he's a pitcher the entire week and you can't use his bat. And knowing that he's coming off Tommy John that he's probably not going to have two start weeks. It just 
kind of chips away at the appeal in a league where you have to make those decisions each and every week. It, it really is, and I really love him. And in my initial starting pitcher preview part one, I did 36 uh, pitchers. I didn't put Otani in there. I think Otani's maybe more talented than someone on, the, on that list. But it's really a tough ask for me right now when I'm considering everything, like the innings, the sixth day, you know, God forbid there's any kind of little setback, you know, then he's not going to pitch for a while. And, you know, as much as I love that he's a two-way player in real-life baseball, I think it's phenomenal. Uh, For fantasy and stuff, you kind of want to see what would he be as a hitter because that looks tremendous. And what would he be as a pitcher if that was full-time? So it's kind of like the catch-22. Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, I think there are formats where he's outstanding. It's something that Eno Saris wrote up for the draft kit. Like, your league format significantly alters where you should draft Otani, whether or not you even want him on your roster at all. Uh, I did get him in a draft and hold a few weeks ago, and I felt like in the 50-round format where your needs are going to change throughout the year, he fell, I think, to the 150 to 170 range. I'm blanking on when exactly it was. He fell enough where I talked myself into it. I didn't have a plan for drafting him. It was just a case where it seemed like I was getting enough of a deal where the headaches were worthwhile. And in that format in particular, I thought it made a lot more sense than it does in a traditional league where you have such limited spots uh, to stash players. Let's uh, transition over to pitchers, uh, problem pitchers. And let's start at the top of the board or near the top of the board with Chris Sale, who's been having a pretty normal offseason by all accounts. The January ADP came in at 37.3, a min pick of 25. If I had to project it, I would put an up arrow next to his name. I imagine we're going to see that ADP get closer to that min pick as we move further into February. Uh, Where do you stand on Chris Sale as we move through this draft season? I mean, for me, I, I know he got the okay from the, from uh, from from the good doctor, but I mean, last year at this time he saw, he signed an extension for 150 million dollars. So we all thought, you know, it was good then. I couldn't take him last year where he was going. He's one of my favorite pitchers. Uh, you know, the silhouette has been my avatar for years uh, until the man in black came along. But uh, you know, it's. Right now, I think I put him like ninth, and I was just being honest. You know, he's he's a mystery to me right now. I really don't know, but he still offers. He could be SP one if he pitches 175 innings of the Chris Sale we know and love. He's you know he's gonna strike out. You know he's gonna put up insane numbers. So right now, I haven't pulled the trigger. I, I desperately want to. But uh, there's a lot of players I like there. It's going to be like one of those, like, say, Jacob DeGrom a couple of years back. When he was throwing, like, 97 and stuff in his first spring training out, he went from, like, a fifth rounder to a second rounder. So if Chris Sale's looking, you know, legit, free and easy, he's going to go from pick 37 to a first-round pick, in my opinion. And even with the fastball velocity down, you know, a mile and a half per hour last year compared to where it was in 2018, he still was missing a ton of bats. The slider is still nasty, works in that changeup as his third pitch. I, I don't know if he even needs to regain all that velocity for me to buy in. I think it's just kind of going out there and, and just looking like himself, having having all three of those pitches working 
is a really good indicator for me that Chris Sale is sort of back. Now, we're talking about a guy that had 158 innings in 2018, 147 and a third in 2019. What do you project him for innings-wise? Do you come in like 175 or, or 180? I would have to think that would be the high end. Uh, right now, entering the year, I really, you know, from what I, if you go post All Star break 2018 on, we've seen the problems. Look, he struck out 218 batters in 147 innings last year, so that's pretty phenomenal. He still has, you know, he's he's elite in so many ways, but with the velocity down and if if one pitch isn't working, he he seems to get he was getting teed off at times. And, you know, maybe subs a little bit of confidence when you start getting whacked around when you never have. But I just don't think he's, you know, he has not been fully healthy. He just hasn't. And it's still in the back of my mind. And I'd have to see him out there just looking free and easy. He's a player, I'll put it this way, I need to see him on the mound. Like, I don't watch a lot of spring training. You know, I watch just a little. But Chris Sale's a guy that I will be tuning in to watch. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you uh, as far as having an extra eye out for sale uh, throughout Grapefruit League play. Let's talk about you, Darvish, for a moment. January ADP for Darvish checked in at 64.9. Min pick was 49. We've seen some pretty ridiculous seasons from him in terms of just a lot of strikeouts, and I think that strikeout ability is still there. I think where he becomes extremely difficult to figure out for 2020 is he stopped walking guys, which of all the things that you Darvish could do, that was not on the list of things I would have expected from him in my wildest dreams. Seven walks in his final 81 and two-thirds innings last season, and that came with 118 strikeouts as well. So it wasn't like he uh, was getting more uh, outs on balls in play and wasn't getting deep into counts and the strikeouts went away because the walks went down. He was still missing bats at an elite U Darvish sort of clip. How viable do you think that is? I mean, do you think he's truly unlocked a new skill to pair with an amazing set of skills? Otherwise, do you think he just ran extremely hot in the second half and just was locating better than ever before? Like, what's going on with Darvish? Because if he's a, a guy that can repeat his second half somehow over a full season. He's criminally underdrafted at that current ADP. Yeah, I had him, uh, I mean, I think I had him 14th. I put him there. Look, it's either you believe the transformation. I dubbed it killing him softly with the cutter. I said he was the right I put for you, Darvish. I said uh, Jack Flaherty was even impressed looking at his second half. He had a 35% strikeout minus walk percentage. That's insane. I think he had a 2% walk rate. So you either believe in it or you don't. And I'm right now believing in it. Uh, I think he made that transformation. Uh, That second half is kind of historical. If you look back at the name of guys who were able to do something like that, uh, he, you know, he's still going to be prone to the lo- to the long ball here or there, but in that range, I mean, I really like him. I'm looking at the guys that are going around him. There's Paddock, there's Morton, Severino. Uh, I mean, look, I'm one of the biggest Paddock guys and all that, but Paddock's curveball has to, you know, has to see some growth here. He needs to have that third pitch, that second year to kind of, you know avoid any sophomore slump. 
Charlie Morton is fantastic. I wrote him up. I, I showed you how wonderful he's been these last couple of years and how it's all validated. And I think I put him 19th. Because I'm suspect Charlie Morton's going to get those innings and, you know, be able to survive again as well as he did in that American League East. The Blue Jays are getting better. The Yankees are a powerhouse. Even when Mookie gets traded, the Red Sox st- still have, you know, three or four premium hitters on that team. So for me, I, I, I just think I'm buying it, obviously. I'm buying Darvish. I believe in it. So... I think that's what, and it started before the second half. That's the point I wanted to get. It was right around about May 20th where he went, you know, where he really just elevated the cutter usage. If you want to go back, look at May 20th on, and you'll see a, a different picture. I think the part of my rankings where I'm still struggling the most is basically from where I have Chris Sale at eight uh, and Steven Strasburg at nine basically from like the back of that part. So like Flaherty at 10 is where it begins yes. down to, <laughs> I've got Carlos Carrasco down at 26 among pitchers. I, I just think you could argue so many pitchers in that range over each other. Like it's, it's a bloodbath in that range. Um, Cause I think with Luis Severino, I mean, we've seen a guy who flashed what looked like top five pitcher upside in the past. He was just hurt for, most of last season, I still see a lot of reasons to like Noah Syndergaard. We saw the breakout from Giolito last year. We saw a breakout from Luis Castillo last year. We saw a breakout cut short due to injuries to Brandon Woodruff and Tyler Glass now. I, I just think you can kind of argue any of those guys over each other, over a Darvish or even over a James Paxton, and it's going to be a fun year in that regard. Like trying to sift through that group is going to be a really big challenge. Like getting that right is going to be, I think very important to having successful seasons. If I can just piggyback off that one second, that's pretty much how I did my starting pitcher rankings this year is I wanted to be honest with the readers. I show you the stats on, you know, like I said, Charlie Morton, he's validated that over the last two years. I can't argue that, but I wanted to show how am I pretty much drafting these guys for the most part? That's how I put it down. Like, Chris Sale got that, whatever, eight or nine that he has out of respect and out of the possibility that if fully healthy, he's realistically has a shot at SP1. So I couldn't, you know, put him down any further. And I haven't drafted him yet. But guys like, in my research, guys like Giolito, I've become more and more bold, uh, you know, more and more of a believer, I should say. And I love him, but I agree. You can make that. You know, however you want. I said about Carrasco. Right now, you know, he's being uh, depressed. But come March, is going to be a, a course correction. So it's going to be fun. But the way I wanted to do my rankings this year was to be honest and say, I'm drafting these guys kind of like this. And like Zach Granke, I put a 25 because I'm not drafting Zach, Zach Granke this year. I mean, can he succeed again? Absolutely. He's not going to be on my team doing it, though. I think right now what he's doing is just he's so cerebrally good on the mound, knows how to pitch, he's throwing Ephus pitches and all that. I just I ain't going in for it this year. No, it's, it's great as Zach Grinke has been. You could just see it breaking down in him very quickly. I mean, it's great command. It's obviously an advanced understanding of how to get hitters out with stuff that's just not as good as it used to be. But yeah, I, I'm more in your camp, I think, with him. Where I I've got him at 25 as well, and I just I don't think there are going to be many rooms where he's still available late enough for me to end up 
having them on my teams. Uh, I think there's a guy kind of going the other direction, a little bit old and boring at this stage of his career, getting a new start in Texas. It's Corey Kluber. His January ADP was 99. Uh, I look at him as a guy that he just was hurt last year. And it was a disaster because he was barely on the mound at all. But we're not that far away from Corey Kluber being a very good pitcher who I think is now moving into what could be uh, kind of a neutral ballpark. We don't know how the new ballpark in Arlington is going to play, but I think the most reasonable starting point is to assume that with the roof closed on very hot days, with the climate controlled on those very hot days, you're not going to have those 85 and 90 degree game time temperatures that we're used to, and that's going to ultimately benefit pitchers at least a little bit, if not a lot. So we're talking about a guy in Corey Kluber who in 2017 and 2018 had a sub-3 ERA <laughs> and a whip below one over 200 innings. Like I don't think the skills just completely disappeared in 35 and two-thirds of innings where he was battling injuries last season. Yeah, I look, I stated last year, I think I had Kluber like at the end of the ace level, like around 12th or something. But I pretty much said, I'm pretty much avoiding Kluber this year. I think it was maybe September. It was some signs. And I got to give him a mulligan for last year. I'm going to give him a mulligan. You know, he got the, the line drive. and So I'm going to give him a mulligan off of that. And when I wrote this year, I think I put him, say, pick 30, uh, rank 31. It's just, as much as I avoided him last year, it's tough to dismiss that track record. And I think the range of outcomes is enormous with this player. And I agree with you. I think there's not going to be 90-degree starts at 7 p.m. now in Texas where it's going to be open. The roof is going to be closed. And I'm with you. I think it plays more neutral. Yeah. So I, I, in general, I think I'm a little more willing to buy in on the Rangers pitching. Uh, Lance Lynn had an ADP of 128 in January. See, I love him. I like him. I like him more than I like him more than Kluber, even though I have them close by. I, I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting because Lance Lynn had this amazing season last year. And I think there's people who are just very skeptical because there were several, several years prior to that where he was not pitching anywhere really close to his 2019 level. But to have your best season in the year of the rabbit ball uh, is actually even more impressive. So I, I think you're right to be aggressive with Lance Lynn if he stays, especially in that current price range. Uh, let's talk about a young pitcher who I think is getting a ton of lift in early drafts, Jesus Lazardo. I understand why people like him. ADP in January was 127. The min pick was 91. I think that makes him the third A's pitcher drafted because Liam Hendricks and Frankie Montes are both going ahead of him. I'm just worried about the innings. Um, you know, we've seen this with other young pitchers. You referenced Chris Paddock earlier. I mean, we knew Paddock with amazing projections going into last year was going to have a limited workload. And the Padres, I think, managed him carefully, but it wasn't a total headache if you had him. I think if you had Paddock last year, you generally had a good feel for when he was and when he wasn't going to pitch. So it really wasn't a, a bad experience. It was just great ratios over three quarters of a, a full season in terms of innings. And I think that's sort of like the best case scenario for Jesus Lazardo. But I'm also not sure that he's quite at Paddock's level skills wise yet to the point where I want to invest a pick in him where I have to really get steady production from what looks like an SP3. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, the minors, I don't think he really ever pitched more than five innings. They maybe did it like twice. And I watched I watched it last year. He 
kid looks amazing. You know, even that he he's got the stuff. You, you, you fall in love watching it and all that. But Paddock last year in like thirty eight main events, his ADP was like forty picks lower. I did, I'll admit, I took Paddock like uh, second pick of uh, round ten. I kind of maybe set the minimum on him last year. But you're even going another two rounds, you know, another round, almost two rounds earlier right now. And I don't think, here's the thing, that I think it even, he's only going up. Because if you, once you see him on the mound in spring training, and if he looks electric, he's not going to be 127 anymore. He's be closer to 110, 100. And it's just a, a lot to commit right there. When you have guys that can, you know, throw you that maybe 180 innings sitting right there next to him in that range or a little later on. So that's that's where it gets tough. I mean, the talent's undeniable, but, I, you know, you he really has to hit. It's the same sort of feeling that I have about Fernando Tatis Jr., where I like the player. I like Jesus Lazardo a lot. I just don't see myself really taking that chance at that price at all. And I think the guy that I'm comparing him to, just based on my my innings expectations and, and overall talent, is Brendan McKay. And I think the biggest difference is that Brendan McKay could get sent down to AAA to begin the season. The Rays have uh, a few more healthy starters at their disposal than the A's do. So it's easy to see a scenario where McKay's the odd man out because he has options left, but I don't think he's going to be in AAA very long this season. I think the total number of innings we see from McKay and Lazardo could be comparable. And I don't think there's much that separates those two guys in terms of what I expect for ratios and what I expect for strikeout rate either. So if Brendan McKay is going to go 100 picks later or more, I'm going to take Brendan McKay 10 times out of 10, even though I like Jesus Lazardo's talent. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point you're making here, uh, DVO. Everybody was super excited about McKay coming up last year. He flashed some really good stuff, struggled. And I'll go back to it once again. With younger players with, that have pedigree, I want them to come up in the second half. It actually works out better from a fantasy perspective than actually if they do struggle because their prices are going to be depressed. But to me, getting that major league experience is invaluable. Traveling with with the club, you know, learning how to go on the road, how to, you know, how to answer questions from the media after a game where you just got rocked or you struck out four times. That is huge for the next season. You walk into camp and you're not like a deer in headlights. Yeah, you just know the routine better. And I'm sure some players can adjust to that uh, more quickly than others. But I think there is something to that, just getting used to the big league lifestyle. And I think that's something that that experience ends up being a major positive for, uh, even when the results aren't you know as good as we wanted. And again, we all remember when Brendan McKay got called up, I, I wrote him up as an ad drops guy in a column. And I, I thought he was the kind of pitcher that, if you had a lot of fab left, you wanted to use a good portion of that to get him. He was kind of an all-in type player if you needed help for your rotation. He didn't turn out that way, but I still think the skills that maybe believe that are all there, and he's capable of unlocking that uh, over a full season, or at least most of a full season with the Rays. Uh, two more problem players I want to bring up. They fit into the exact same bucket. Veteran closers who have been very good to fantasy owners for a long time. Kenley Jansen, whose January ADP was around 126, and Craig Kimbrell, whose January ADP was at 142. 
Jansen wasn't as much of a disaster as Craig Kimbrell was last year because really nobody was, uh, at least among closers. <laughs> so I think with Jansen, it's just a question of how much do you worry about Blake Trinan maybe being there and possibly taking away save opportunities? Uh, how much do you think he can sustain ratios that are still very good? A 371 ERA is not what you get from an elite closer, but a 106 whip is still very good. Uh, still struck out 30% of the batters he faced. Like, like Kenley's not Pete Kenley anymore, but he's still good enough to be a top 10 closer, isn't he? Here's the thing. He's going right next to Edwin Diaz. Actually goes like three or four picks ahead of him right now. And Ken Giles goes like six picks behind him. And I'd rather have either one of those two guys. Uh, Ken Giles right now, uh, skills-wise, is just overlooked and... He's he might get traded in four months. Will most likely will get traded in four months. I don't think there's any competition for him there in that bullpen. So it's his. Even if it's three months, he's there. There's a possibility he gets traded and he goes to a team that needs a closer or he fills in for an injury guy. You know that, that went down. Uh, Edwin Diaz is going to get every single opportunity to succeed as the Mets closer. Brody Van Wagen uh, mortgaged everything for this player. You know, he took on that contract. He got rid of their top prospect for Edwin Diaz at his cost. Uh, if you look at it, the last, whatever it was, the last month or so, the last six weeks, pretty much struck out like 49% of the batters he faced or 48%. So I think for me personally, it might sound crazy, but I, I want Edwin Diaz and Ken Giles over Kenley Jansen because I think there's just, it's that downward trend that I just, I don't like. And I, I know I'm saying that with Edwin Diaz coming off of an Edwin Diaz year, but I think he's just got so much more more security. Yeah, I'm with you on Giles especially. I have him ahead of Jansen and Diaz. I think Jansen and Diaz are in the same tier for different reasons. Like I'm not looking at Trinan as a guy who's going to outright take Kenley Jansen's job. So I think uh, relative to the pool, Jansen is the rare closer who I really just don't see having a lot of risk as long as he's healthy of yielding the ninth inning to somebody else. Diaz, I think, has a much higher skills ceiling. I understand why his price really hasn't fallen that much coming off a disappointing season. Um, but those two guys, are as different as they are skills-wise at this point in their respective careers, they're both top 10 closers for me. Kimbrell's the trickier one. I mean, with Craig Kimbrell... I don't think there was any compelling reason to believe a massive decline was coming going into last year. I thought that was a nice addition when the Cubs signed him. Uh, he had a strange spring training back in 2018 with the Red Sox. I think one of his kids was sick, so he was back home in Boston working on his own. He wasn't even with his teammates for most of the spring. And he came out and fired 62 to third innings with a sub-3 ERA and a .99 whip with 96 strikeouts. Like He looked mostly like himself. It was his worst season of his career in terms of FIP, but he was still good enough to get the job done, racked up the 42 saves. I mean, last season with the Cubs, it was only 20 and two-thirds innings, a 6.53 ERA, a 160 whip. I mean, it was a, it was a total nightmare for Kimbrell with, for year one. Uh, I think the only real skills concern that I have, Matt, is I look at the walk rate for Craig Kimbrell going back to 2016. He's had a double-digit walk rate. He's been at 12.5% or higher in three of the last four seasons now. And I think in 16, it kind of started when he had uh, knee surgery in the second half. He kind of played sooner than he should have or pitched sooner than he should have and never quite got right. So is is that 
the really like the biggest skills drawback for you with Kimbrel? Like, is he a safe closer because of the track record? Do you throw out 2019? Like, what's your approach with him? I mean, for 2019, you do got to cut him some slack with the signing late and stuff. I agree as far as the skills go. You know, that walk it was scaring the crap out of me even last year. But for me with Kimbrel, I think it goes one or two ways this year. He's either going to be the comeback closer of the year or he's going to be, it's going to be a disaster. It's, I don't think there's an in-between for Kimbrel. And the one guy in my draft champions, I pretty much take every time because it's like late 30s, almost 40-round pick, is Ronan Wick. Because I think maybe he gets in there. Or even if, even if Kimbrel's healthy, he gets like 10 saves or something like that. Give him a, give him a break here and there. I, I just think there's not going to be an in-between with Kimbrel. Like, like I said, I think those are the two options. I'm worried about him, but as far as the price goes... You know, he's, he has security because they gave him that contract. So they're going to give him every opportunity. Yeah, still two more years left on that <laughs> deal. Uh, it's a big deal, too. And the it Cubs is. haven't been spending any money. So I think they're just kind of expecting a rebound from Craig Kimbrell. Uh, generally, at that price, I don't have him anywhere yet. I haven't really been steering away from Kimbrell. But I also haven't pushed him up a round or two. Like when that tier starts to get chipped away in front of him, I don't really round up on Kimbrel. I kind of just let him become someone else's problem. So I guess I'm definitely <laughs> spooked uh, by what happened with him from uh, last year. Uh, by the way, if you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash podcast. Again, today marked the launch of our draft kit. So we got lots of articles, rankings, everything you need to get ready for the 2020 season. We also launched another short podcast that goes up every weekday morning. It's called Fantasy Baseball in 15 Everything you know from a news standpoint in 15 minutes each and every weekday on The Athletic, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts as well. Matt, we did it. We got through all of our problem players in one episode. I'm amazed we pulled it off, but hopefully uh, that definitely helped people along the way. Now, if you have more problem players you want us to get to in a future episode, tweet at us. He's at CTM Baseball. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns with Under the Radar on Wednesday. Be sure to check out Rates and Barrels coming up on Tuesday. Have a great day.